Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast on life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion, and I'm your host. First, I want to wish everyone a happy Ethiopian New Year. And Kutatash, the first day of the new year in Ethiopia, will be Monday, September 11th. For any of our listeners in Los Angeles, be sure to get to Little Ethiopia on Sunday for the 16th annual Little Ethiopia Street Festival. Following up on the Kenyan presidential election that we talked about in last week's episode with Kathleen Klaus, we want to point our listeners to a piece Ken Apollo wrote in The Monkey Cage, published earlier this week. In the post, Ken draws on his research on political institutions in Africa to show how the historic ruling by Kenya's Supreme Court was only possible because the judiciary is politically independent from the president. Talking about presidents, there have been large protests in Togo calling for the president to leave office. Fora Nasing Bey is currently in the middle of his third term as president, and his presidency follows that of his father, Nasing Bey Ayadema. Together, the Nasing Bey dynasty has ruled Togo for the last 50 years. To counter the protests, Nasing Bey's government has restricted access to the internet and has also blocked text messaging. Also in West Africa, the U.S. Peace Corps has evacuated all 124 of its volunteers from Burkina Faso, citing security concerns. The decision follows a terror attack on the restaurant in Burkina Faso's capital, Ouagadougou, last month. For all the doom and gloom in the news, there was some really great writing on the internet this week. Alexis Okeowo has a beautiful piece in The New Yorker following a Somali basketball player who plays despite threats against her and other women athletes in Somalia more broadly. Okeowo's book, A Moonless Starless Sky, is coming out early next month, and I can't wait to read it. I also want to point listeners to a wonderful long read by Sisonke Msimang reviewing Howard French's three books in the Johannesburg Review of Books. Her piece is so much more than a book review. It's really a piece about writing and storytelling. We'll post links to the things we've mentioned here, as well as bonus links to other things we found interesting on Monday morning to our website, ufahamuafrica.com. In this week's episode, we speak with Professor Landry Signet, a distinguished fellow at Stanford University Center for African Studies, founding chairman of the award-winning Global Network for Africa's Prosperity, and professor of political science and senior advisor to the Chancellor and Provost on International Affairs at the University of Alaska, Anchorage. Thank you so much, Landry, for agreeing to be a guest on Ufahamu Africa. I wanted to start with asking you about what motivates your work. How did you first become interested in the politics of economic development? Thank you very much, Kim, uh, for this fabulous initiative. I'm honored to be your guest. Uh, well, things started quite early. Uh, as you know, I was born in Cameroon, mm-hmm. which is usually called uh, Africa in miniature, so because <laughs> of its diversity culturally and geographically. Yeah. So, and I witnessed. Uh, many problems uh, which were the result when I was quite young of bad governance uh-huh. uh, and poor economic management. Okay. So some of them include a high level of poverty. Some of my friends, their parents had a salary of uh, less than uh, $25 for a month. So right. it was very difficult. Many of my friends died. 
because of simple illnesses. Right. And uh, some of the ones who were particularly smart yeah. were not able to go further in school uh, because of uh, lack of financial resources. Right, to pay for school fees Absolutely. or supplies. So I grew up thinking about those questions. I was reading a newspaper regularly and uh, because my dad was uh, buying them and then I was reading at home. Yeah. And I grew up thinking about how to, to fix all those problems. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I think as I grew up, I my, my goal became to better understand uh, questions related to governance, economic development, right. uh, in order to fix them. Right. And the best uh, uh, venue I found to do that was through scholarship, education, yeah. uh, and policy influence. Oh. Well, now, and you just recently wrote a book on this, right? Innovating Development Strategies in Africa, the Role of International, Regional, and National Actors. In it, you study the economic development um, strategies in nine Francophone African countries. How would you summarize the book's main argument, maybe for someone who has bought the book but hasn't had a chance yet to read it? Okay. So, Moss Kora, uh, who uh, write about development strategies in Africa, Mm-hmm. Uh, we rather focus on uh, continuity in development strategies because right. most of them fail or have failed thus far. Right. Uh, so, so everything is the same. Nothing has changed. The same. All wine. The uh, new. Uh, all wine in uh, the in new, uh, new borders. Yeah. yeah things. <laughs> and so, my goal is to address the underexplored topic of political innovation. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And. My argument, like behind the apparent continuity that we can observe, mm-hmm. or that many other scholars have observed, mm-hmm. uh, there are innovations mm-hmm. uh, which, even if in the short run, uh, fair, yeah. sometimes substantially contribute uh, to uh, more important transformation. So. And ultimately, I, I, I try to answer three major questions. Mm-hmm. So what are the drivers of policy uh, and economic transformations of uh, the past uh, half century? Uh-huh. Uh, what is the role uh, of uh, international but also regional and national actors in the making of these development strategies? And finally, how, why, and uh, when does policy or institutional innovation occur uh, on the continent. I propose a um, broader theory to understand uh, these processes given their uh, importance. Now, what would you say? I mean, there's a lot in your book, and and um, and even myself when I was reading it, you know, there were there were lots of things that I learned, and I, I feel like I know a lot about economic development strategies in Africa, but I there there is so much to learn from your book, and I wonder, you know, as a scholar of African economic development and having having studied this for so long, I wonder if there was anything you learned through the course of your research that was surprising to you or or, or really interesting. Uh, 
the most interesting thing I, I have learned is that even apparently failed uh, policies sometimes uh, contribute in the long term in successes. Okay. Let's take the uh, case of structural adjustment programs. Right, which are notably a failure. Absol <laughs> absolutely. They were first not fully implemented, and yes. even when they were implemented, they didn't necessarily result in uh, immediate economic gain. Right. Plus, uh, they had poor uh, or devastating social impacts in education, exactly. health. health. However, over the long run, mm -hmm. uh, the structural adjustment programs have introduced new rules of the game. Mm. So the message what, which was sent uh, to African leaders was that uh, poor economic management will, or, or unaccountable governance, ineffective governance will not be any more tolerated. So okay. these uh, new rules of the game uh, have resulta resulted in better or uh, in the improvement of economic management, in more accountable governance, mm -hmm. uh, although we have asymmetric outcome. Yeah. And, uh, what do you mean by asymmetric outcomes? Uh, this means that some countries outperform others. Yes. And uh, what is interesting is that the better overall economic performance of African countries mm -hmm. In, at the beginning of the 21st century, mm -hmm. uh, I think is partly explained by the introduction of the structural adjustment. Uh, of course, you also have the uh, debt relief right. at the end of the debt crisis with the debt relief and the right. international context, which was favorable. But looking at the long run, mm -hmm. allow to observe some processes, uh, trajectories, uh, which wouldn't have been possible by only focus on the immediate outcome of policies. I have to say that this was the the thing from your book that really struck with, stuck with me the most is that focus the need to focus on the failures not as failures but as waypoints to a, a better outcome. And and it's it, it is kind of I think just you know, as a scholar of political economy and development, I I was I, I mean it made me feel emotional. Like I hate Aww. structural adjustment and I was like I felt like I was being tricked into <laughs> no. the like you know, I mean not I mean certainly we're not saying that structural adjustment was a good thing, but it's I mean I think that this is one of the really clever things about your book in that it's making us look at structural adjustment a different way and and seeing it, you know, really like peeling back all of the layers of of what it's done. And of course, you know, I don't want to I don't want to minimize the incredible negative externalities that came with structural adjustment, right? The nurses who lost their jobs, the teachers who lost their jobs, you know, the many children who didn't get education or immunizations in this period of great government retrenchment. But I have to say that was one of so okay, so I'm gonna stop Yeah, I'm no, that's 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 about good. how great your book was, but <laughs> that, that's that's a great point. And one of the things that I have also done was to observe or try to explain the relation between national, international, and regional actors. Yeah. And what we can see that is that if uh, from the uh, independence to the early 80, African leaders were almost free to do anything they wanted, right. they were unaccountable, overly spending, uh, and uh, most of them were corrupt with huge bank accounts uh, in 
Switzerland, among other places. So what was interesting with the structural adjustment, leaders who were not accountable to their citizens and neither to their citizens, uh, uh, nor to the, the international actors, right. finally become some to uh, how accountable or partly accountable to international actors. Right. And the new generation of uh, economists on the continent uh, were also trained with the mindset that it is extremely important to balance accounts and not just spend hoping that the resources will come yeah. uh, with no conditions. Right. I mean, not to say that there weren't African leaders who who weren't corrupt in the independence to 80s period, right? I'm thinking, for example, of like Thomas Sankara, right? He wasn't one of these guys with a major Swiss bank account and, you know, multiple vehicles in his convoy. I mean, the guy rode a bike around. Yes, <laughs> uh, absolutely. Some will speak also about Nyerere. Exactly. Uh, so we, we had some exception, and that is yes. the good thing about the continent. Yeah, that there's variation. Mm-hmm. So obviously listeners will know that I'm really impressed by your book. Uh, and, and I'm not alone. Innovating Development Strategies in Africa features endorsements by University of Oxford economist Paul Collier and Cornell Professor of Government Nicholas Van de Waal. The book even includes a foreword written by the former president of Malawi, Her Excellency Joyce Banda. Now, as someone who studies Malawi, I have to ask, how did you come to meet President Banda and how did she learn of your research? You are very kind, Kim. <laughs> Thank you. Um, President Banda and I uh, were hosted at the Woodrow Wilson uh, Center for International Scholar for about a year. That's in Washington, D.C., Absolutely, in Washington, D.C. So we have worked very closely on numerous projects Mm -hmm. uh, uh, aiming at positively, uh, contributing to positively transform the continent. So she knew, she she got to know my work Mm -hmm. uh, in our collaboration because we work on different topics uh, related to the continent. I'm very impressed uh, by her devotion, her commitment uh, Mm -hmm. for Africa and her words of uh, wisdom. And I was uh, very honored and grateful uh, when she uh, wrote the forward. Yeah, it's it's a really nice forward. So I want to talk a bit more broadly about research. Uh, And I want to ask you a question that was originally articulated by Vassar College political scientist Zachariah Mompili. As you might know, the second half of the first season of Ufahamu Africa, we're asking our guests to answer a question that Zachariah raised in episode 24. Now, he has six questions, but I'll just ask you one. So, who is the audience, real or imagined, for our intellectual work? That is a great question. Um, I think we have three main audiences, okay. and it will also depend on the perspective of each scholar. But the three main audiences, I think, of uh, first, uh, as we are writing to advance knowledge, uh-huh. uh, our audience is primary audience uh, is considered of scholars, okay. uh, political scientists, Africanists, and other scholars in the social sciences and humanities. 
So, but uh, as some of us uh, are, are also interested in providing independent evidence-based research yeah. uh, that inform policies, right. I think it's extremely important uh, to make our work accessible mm -hmm. uh, for a broad variety of uh, policy uh, leaders, both whether national, uh, local, international, right. uh, from uh, the policy uh, or policymakers, leaders from business and uh, civil society organizations. So I think those are two key audiences. A third one uh, is um, composed of citizens. Okay. I think as political scientists, it's also our responsibility, especially in uh, the uh, current context of fake news and yeah. post-truth societies, yeah. uh, to engage with citizens and to provide uh, insightful perspective uh, of issues that are at play uh, uh, in Africa or in the world. So I want to follow up a bit on that last point of, of writing for citizens, like having them be, you know, another audience for you. Um, and I know you engage in a lot of public engagement, right? So you write op-eds and and you've written blog posts for the Monkey Cage that have been really insightful for our for our readers at the Monkey Cage. Um, I wonder, do you write in other languages, right? Um, do you do? Are there other forms of media that you use? I mean, obviously, you're here on the podcast, so, so you also do, do this. You know, are there other kinds of engagement where you're trying to reach this kind of broader citizen public? Uh, uh, yes. First, congratulations on your phenomenal work with uh, the podcast and the Washington Post. You are everywhere in social media. <laughs> I don't know how many uh, scholars, if there's any scholar of African politics who matches your ability to reach uh, a so diverse audience. Oh, thank you. Um, so, I also write in French. Okay. So, it is extremely important. That is one of the things I do at least 25. Of course, the, the number is not exact, but about 25% of my writings, I try to keep it in French. I try to engage with the Francophone world. Yeah. I try to uh, give... Uh, uh, some, uh, let's say, broader audience talks, yeah. uh, both in uh, French-speaking countries to motivate the youth uh, to uh, go to attend university and right. to plan your career, etc. Yeah. Um, so those are part of the things that I do. Uh, of course, I'm involved with different conferences: the World Economic uh, Conference, okay. the World uh, the World Economic Forum, the World Policy Conference, or the Atlantic Dialogues where I try to engage with different policy leaders and, and to present um, my own research, but also research from uh, my fellow uh, political scientists. Mm. Uh, so those are some of the uh, avenues or platforms that I use uh, to engage with people. That's great. Before we go, I wanted to ask, is there any book you're reading right now or maybe one that you've read recently that you found interesting or might encourage our listeners to pick up? 
I have recently. In addition, in addition to your book, of course. <laughs> How did you know? I was already ready to pitch my book again. No, I'm joking. Um, I recently, I have recently read a book, uh, an impressive memoir written by uh, Suat Mekenet. Uh, she is a uh, journalist at the Washington Post. Okay. She was uh, born in Germany. Uh, of uh, a uh, Moroccan father and Turkish mother uh-huh. and the book title is I was told to come alone she covers uh, issues such as uh, natu- national security and terrorism uh-huh. and she writes with prose uh-huh. she uh, spoke about or she wrote about uh, meetings with people you and I will never want to engage with in places where people ask her to come alone and where anything could have happened to her. Right. No one will have known. Yeah. Uh, focusing mostly in the Middle East and North Africa, uh-huh. uh, meeting uh, leaders from terrorist organizations. So I found the book very interesting first because it looks like a, a, a thriller, but also he may be interesting for some political scientists uh, interested in having a break while uh, learning uh, a few things about uh, uh, how a journalist, uh, the encounter between a journalist and uh, some of their object of studies. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much, Landry, for joining us this week. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kim. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. We're at ufahamuafrica.com or on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by AWAC and the Government Department. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama.